A father's faith impacts an entire family. That's the real message of this text that we're looking at today. And it so happens that this text, which was not chosen, in my way of thinking, I had no idea we'd be here when we got to this day, but it's perfectly appropriate. This man's faith, we see, really unfolded in stages. Obviously, faith has to have a beginning. And his was not the most auspicious beginning of faith. It was precipitated, as we're going to see, by a crisis in his life of major proportions. But also we see his faith blossoming throughout this short passage of Scripture. From a beginning to growth that's measurable, that's obvious, to eventual maturity. Allow me an illustration. There is a man who perhaps has made his way into your home more than one time via the airwaves. His name is Ernie Johnson, Jr. If you're an NBA fan, you know he is the host of Inside the NBA. You know he's overshadowed by the bigger personalities of Shaquille O'Neal and Kenny Smith and, yes, of Charles Barkley. Barkley was asked to give a description of his colleague, Ernie Johnson, Jr. This is what he said. He said, he is a man of uncommon courage and of a pure heart. Amazing. This is a man who before this last week, I knew very little, virtually nothing about his spiritual life. But I happened upon an interview that he was giving. It was aired over the radio last week in two parts on Focus on the Family. And it was, to my delight, revealed that he is a man of genuine faith. His pilgrimage with Christ began when he was 40 or 41 years of age. The reason I'm not sure about the exact age, he was born in 1956 and he was born again in the year 1997. Prior to that, he and his wife Cheryl had met in Macon, Georgia, and they had fallen in love with each other. They had gotten married. He was off and running in his career, and it's been a very successful career. He's won three Emmys for Best Sports Personality as a Studio Host. He's very accomplished. Interestingly, when he received his third Emmy not too long ago, some of you remember Stuart Scott, who was, in my estimation, the best of the best of ESPN announcers. Scott had just passed away, and when he received the Emmy, he gave it to Stuart Scott's daughters. And he said, as he received it, they were in the audience, he said, this is for you. Beautiful gesture. But prior to his coming to know Jesus Christ, he and his wife had two children. Their names are Eric and also Maggie. These children now are in their 30s. And these children brought great joy into their family. But they had this growing sense that they would love to adopt a child. And they knew that there were many children in the U.S. that might be available, but they wanted to go to an Eastern European nation to find a child who had been orphaned. So Cheryl, his wife, went to Romania. And there she was introduced to a child who was very ill. He suffered from Duchenne's disease, which is one of the more terrible forms of muscular dystrophy. And he was, as a result, not expected to live very long. He was about three years old at the time. His name is Michael. 
And Michael was adopted by this family. When Cheryl saw the child, the lady who introduced her to this child, he could not walk. He could not talk. He was somewhat uncoordinated, as you would expect, having muscular dystrophy, very weak. And this is what the orphan orphanage lady said to Cheryl when she saw this little boy, whose name is Michael. She said, bad boy, you don't want him, in her broken English. And she said, when that was said to her, it was like something occurred in her heart. And she thought, nobody wants this child. I think this may be the child that we're to get. She got on the phone, called Ernie, told the story to Ernie. And Ernie, after hearing the story, there was a pause for a few seconds. And he said, bring him home with you. And so they came home, Cheryl and Michael. They were met at the airport by Ernie. The two children that were born biologically to the Johnson family and other friends and family. And there was this great reunion. Well, soon thereafter, Michael was taken to a neurologist who specialized in children who had muscular dystrophy. And this is what the man said to the couple. He said, this boy will never talk. He will never walk. He will never be able to bond with another human being due to the neglect of the first three years of his life. Well, the Johnsons didn't take too kindly to that. They didn't accept this ultimate diagnosis of the child. And they began to pour love into him as they had already been doing. And he now is able to talk. He's 28 years old, by the way. On July the 6th, It'll mark the 25th anniversary of his coming to the U.S. to be part of the Johnson family. And another sidebar is that since he came into the family, the family has adopted three more children. A girl by the name of Carmen from Paraguay, and then two sisters who are in foster care here in the United States, and these young ladies are in the family too. There's six children now, two biological children, four adopted children. Well... After Michael came to the family, as I mentioned, Ernie Johnson came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. I tried to discover something about how that occurred, but there was no actual mention of it. But his faith had a beginning. And then his faith really took a leap forward when he was diagnosed in 2003 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. And it was a big jolt to him, of course, And to his family, I'm going to read part of an interview he gave to an organization which is named Coping with Cancer. Very telling interview. And then as he went forward in growth, come to the recent presidential election. He did something that could have cost him his job, probably. It was on November the 10th of 2016 An NBA game had just concluded. The panel was there. They were discussing the game. And when it came time for him to wrap up the show, which he always does, he took a deep breath. Then he took about two minutes to make this statement. He said, I was conflicted by our recent presidential election. It just had occurred two days before. He said, I had trust issues voting for Hillary Clinton. 
And I could not bring myself to vote for Donald Trump because of his inflammatory rhetoric. And then he said, I did something I've never done. He said, I have not missed a presidential election since I was eligible to vote. And I wrote a candidate's name in. He chose to write in John Kasich. He said, I did that because I felt like his vision for America was one that unites America, does not further divide the United States. And he went on to say, I've brought in the P word, politics, and you're never supposed to talk about politics, right? In a public arena like that, at least, or in relationships. He said, since I brought that word up, I'm bringing the R word up, I'm bringing the religion word up. And he said, the reason I so desire to see this nation unified is because I am a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. He still has his job. I don't know how much longer he'll have it, but he still has his job. Let me read to you a few things that he said. Three questions. There were many questions. I selected these three questions offered by Coping with Cancer. And it reveals something about this man. And hopefully you're following me. Where I'm headed is, he is a father who has real faith in Jesus Christ. And it's impacting his whole family. Listen to this first question. Many survivors I have spoken with say that cancer is the worst and the best thing that's ever happened to them. Do you feel the same way? He says, my Christian faith has been my lifeline through this whole thing. While this is certainly not something that I would have chosen, it's part of a much bigger plan for my life. The opportunity to encourage others who are going through similar trials has been Awesome. Can you imagine a person saying that about being victimized by cancer? This is what a man of faith who is growing in his faith and maturing in his faith can say about crises in his life. Look at the next question. What is in the future for you now? In the future for me? Well, I was diagnosed when I was 47. I'm 54 now. This is six years ago. He's 60 years old now. When I wake up tomorrow morning, I'll thank God for another day. And I'll keep doing that whether I'm here for another five minutes or another 60 years. And here's the last question I'll read. The interviewer asks, what was it like to go through something so personal while in the public eye? He said, the night that I told viewers what I was facing, I said that everybody has issues they have to deal with. And this was mine. I said that my family and I would face this challenge the same way we face any challenge. That would be trusting God, period. We see this man, and I wish we could get a snapshot right this minute at his Wife and six children, they don't have a perfect family. He's not a perfect man. They're a family, however, who has learned the secret to success in this life and certainly prepares us for the life to come. It's trusting in God. This man that we encounter in the fourth chapter of John, he's unnamed. He's described, but he's unnamed. He is a certain royal official. His faith began with a crisis. Now, let me stop here just a moment. 
You might say, you know, I'm not in a crisis yet. I'll just wait till I get into a crisis for my faith to get jump started. Well, look, you don't have to wait for that. Many of us came to Christ without having a crisis in our lives. Thank God for that. Nobody wants a crisis, right? This man had a pretty big crisis. I can't think of any bigger crisis for a man to have who is a father than to have a child who is at the point of death. That's the way the child is described here. A child who is at the point of death. And this man is desperate. He needs help for his child. Let's look at verse 46 and we'll work our way through the passage. Jesus came therefore again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. The phrase was sick suggests that it was not an acute attack of an illness. Rather, it was a chronic condition. So this son of his, we don't know how old he was. The word for son could apply to a son who was 40 years old or a son who was four days old. We don't know how old he was, but he was dear to this man. And this man had watched his son battle this illness for some time. He was sick for a while, we know that. We know from biblical literature and extra-biblical literature that the town in which he lived, Capernaum, which is on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, it later became the headquarters of Jesus when he did his work in the Galilean region. We know that there were doctors in that town. How do we know? The extra-biblical source is the authority on that particular time of history in Palestine, Josephus. Josephus picked an example out of his own life. He was traveling by horseback, going through Capernaum. The horse threw him. He sustained an injury, and he said he sought out a physician, a doctor, in Capernaum. In the Bible, in the book of Mark, chapter 5, we are told about a woman who had 12 years of hemorrhaging. And if you know anything about Jewish life, to have such a A condition would mean that you were rendered unclean. You could not worship the Lord with the rest of people in your area. You could not have contact with anyone, even family members, without rendering them incapable of having the kind of up-to-date religious expression that the law of Moses required. But that woman had spent money hand over fist, the text says, seeking medical attention in Capernaum. She lived in Capernaum. Now, it's feasible. We don't know for sure. It's feasible that this certain royal official spent money and left no stone unturned when it came to getting his boy physical help, medical help. So here is this boy in a very chronic condition. His condition is deteriorating to the point that he's described to be at the point of death. Look at verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. Now, this was a 20-mile journey. And there's no mention of anyone going with him. That's rather unusual. We meet some of his slaves a bit later in the text. So... He could have taken his slaves with him. However, they stayed behind. His wife is not mentioned. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? She would have been at home with her son, trying to nurse him and care for him, get him back 
to good health. So he makes this journey. Now, remember who he is. He is a royal official. Probably he was on the staff, if you will, or in the court of Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, remember, was the king when Jesus was born. This man was in charge of the Galilean region. He is called actually a king in Mark chapter 6. He wasn't a king, but he was called a king. He was viewed that way by the Galileans. He was held in high esteem. And this man was in his court. He may have been his steward, which would mean that he managed all of his affairs, both business and professional affairs. He could have had that position. But nevertheless, he was a man of prestige. He was the envy of other Galileans. He never had to worry whether he was going to have enough food to eat, have enough nice clothes to wear, have a nice place to live. He was a man of power, influence. He was a man who was looked up to in his region. Imagine him coming for a visit to Jesus. Jesus is a peasant. Jesus' profession is that of a carpenter. But he had heard that Jesus was in Galilee. Now the question is, and this is one of those questions that really piques my curiosity, who did he hear it from? Well, there's a hint of a possibility in the book of Luke, chapter 8. There is a description of some women who assisted Jesus and the apostles in some way in their work of preaching the gospel. And among those is a woman who is known as Joanna, whose husband was the steward of Herod, Antipas, and his name was Chusa. We don't know if this royal official was named Chusa or not. We don't know. But what we do know is, if that information is correct, and it is, then this family would know this royal official. And probably the royal official would have known that Chusa's wife, Joanna, had gotten sick and that Jesus had made her well. So, word travels fast. That sort of word travels very fast. So, he got the word and therefore, in his crisis situation, in his desperation, he seeks Jesus out. And the scripture says he was requesting him, that is Jesus, to come down and heal his son. Now, let me stop here. The word for son, I've already mentioned, it's a generic term for any male offspring. A little later, he uses the word child when referring to this child. Look at verse 49. He says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. The word child. Now, some of you are people who have Spanish as either your primary language or your secondary language. And if you're Hispanic in particular, if you have a son, and he may be just a child, or he may be an adult, when he was a child, you probably affectionately referred to him as mijo, correct? And if he's 30 years old now, or 40 years old now, you still call him what? Mijo, why? It's a term of endearment, isn't it? This man loved his son. He cared so deeply for his son. And he was requesting, and the word translated requesting, here again, this is a little technical, but it's important for us to get the picture. He didn't just ask one time for the healing of his son. He asked multiple times. We know that because of the tense of the verb that's in the original language. He kept on asking him to come down. And we're wondering, why is Jesus being so reluctant? 
Is Jesus reluctant to heal people? Is He reluctant to be merciful to people? We'll see the answer to that question in just a moment. So, look, men, understand that if you're going to be a man of faith, you're going to have to be a man who comes to Jesus in humility, first of all, like this royal official, forgot about his title, didn't pull the royal official card when introducing himself to Jesus. There was no mention of that. And he comes in humility and he begs Jesus, in effect, to do something for his son. And he also does it repeatedly. So, here's another aspect of the beginning of faith. You have to be humble. Jesus says, unless you become like a child, a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You've got to humble yourself before God. The biggest roadblock to our putting our faith in Christ is our pride. Men especially, we wrestle with this. It's hard for us to admit we need Jesus in our lives. And I might add, the older you get, the harder it becomes. But sometimes crises are sent into our lives. And in the case of this man, think about it for a moment. Had he been childless, he probably would never have met Jesus. Because it was the sickness of this dear child of his that drove him in desperation to try to help his son get well. You also have to come to him with persistency. Asking Him in humility and persistency. Keep on asking Him. There's a parable Jesus tells in Luke 18 about a woman, a widow. She comes to a judge. He's an unjust judge. And she asks Him for help. The man said, I don't even know you, lady. Get out of here. You are a nuisance. And she keeps coming back, however. And she keeps bugging Him until finally He says, okay, I've got to get rid of this woman. She's driving me crazy. So he gives her what she asks and sends her on her way. And Jesus is telling this parable to help us know how we're to relate to God the Father. Many times we only have just a moment to ask the Lord for something in a very dire strait. But most of the time there's a prolonged period between the asking and the receiving. And if we don't get the answer immediately, our tendency is to give up and say, well, not going to ask anymore. Maybe walk away angry at God. God did not pay attention to us. Jesus is approached and he didn't give an answer immediately. But what he, he did see is this man kept coming. Do you know in the parable of this widow that I spoke of found in Luke chapter 18? And the end of it in giving an explanation of what this was all about. He gives the explanation in a question actually. He says, when the Son of Man comes, talking about Jesus Himself, coming at the end of the age to establish His reign here and rule here on earth, will He find faith on the earth? How will Jesus find faith when He comes again? Men, how will He find it? When you and I are asking the Lord for His help. That would apply to women too, not just to men, obviously. It's true of all of us. We keep on asking, asking you will receive, seeking you will find, Jesus says. Knock and the door will be open to you. Whoever asks will receive, whoever seeks finds, whoever knocks the door will be open. That's found in Matthew chapter 7, 7 and following. So, don't give up. If your child is in some sort of crisis, don't give up. 
If you find your child in a crisis, don't give up. And let me be sure to say, don't wait till your child is in a crisis to pray for him or her. Pray for that child. This is the great gift you can give to your child. Your faith, they have to have their own faith. We can't pass that on to our children in the sense of giving them something that we have that they don't have. They have to have their own faith. We can't force faith on children. They have to receive Jesus as their own Lord and Savior. But what we can do, we can pray for them and be urgent in our praying and persistent in our praying, humble in our praying and our walk with the Lord. Look at verse 48. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Do you sense Jesus' frustration here? Why was he frustrated? Because people, and people still do this today, we come to Jesus and we want Jesus to do something for us. Now, he has all the power necessary to do anything. And we see evidence of it in this story. We see it all over the Bible. Nothing's impossible for God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So we can continue to have that kind of relationship and should to the Lord. He wants us to ask Him. He says, call to me and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. So we have to ask the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. But these people, they were interested in what they could get from Jesus, period. And then when the pressure was off, exhale and go back to life as it was before. Jesus doesn't respond to that kind of faith. But look at what the royal official says to Jesus in verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. Something clicked in this man's heart and mind. Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, we've seen that in John chapter 2. He doesn't have to be told what's in my heart, nor in your heart. He knows. He peers down into the depths of our heart. He knows what's there. And he knows to whom he can entrust himself. And he crosses that line, Jesus does, and he entrusts himself to this man when he says to him, look at verse 50, go your way, your son lives. And this is the second stage of faith. His faith goes from being very infantile, being very rudimentary, to growing. It's starting to grow. In the middle of verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Let's stop there just a moment. The Bible says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. You want your faith to grow, Father? You will not grow unless you listen to what Jesus says. How do we listen to Christ? Is He speaking to anybody in here? Well, He will speak to male or female who puts himself or herself in a position to have an ear to hear by reading the Bible. It's that simple. Open Scripture. If you're not in the habit of reading the Word of God, men or women for that matter, open to the Gospel of John. Just start reading and ask for Christ to speak to you. Believe me, He has never backed away from answering that kind of prayer. And this man's faith grew. He had to first hear the Word of God, and his faith began to explode in a way, to blossom. And the Bible says, the next part of verse 50, he started off. In other words... He began to make the trek back down from Cana, which was several hundred feet, probably over a thousand feet above sea level, down to Capernaum, which is 700 feet below sea level on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He starts making his journey back. And this is the third aspect. His faith began to reach maturity when he acted on what Christ told him to do. 
And we'll look, read verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. Well, he already knew that in his heart because he had trusted the word of Christ. He took Christ at his word and he acted on it. Look at verse 52. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Voila, he says. Because when he was getting ready to leave the village of Cana to go down to Capernaum, undoubtedly he checked the sundial in the middle of the town. And he noted the hour. It was the seventh hour. That stayed with him. And when he meets these slaves, several hours later, we don't know exactly where he met them, but the result is, it's confirmed for him. The Bible says, 53, the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed. I thought he'd already believed. He had. But look, This matter of believing is not a one-time event. We have an initiatory faith where we trust Christ, we give Him our lives. Do you know what the bottom line of sin is? People have all kinds of ideas, but the Bible is very clear. The root of sin is unbelief. The Bible says in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. So if I have a lack of faith, I'm in a state of unbelief. Once we trust Christ to come into our lives, to forgive us of our sin, to take control of our lives, that's the beginning point. And then it continues to grow by faith. I have been following Jesus Christ seriously for at least 45 years. There have been very few days in my life in that 45-year period of time when I have not opened the Bible in effort to grow in my relationship to Jesus Christ And my faith has grown in direct proportion to my exposure to Jesus Christ and His Word in the Bible. Let me tell you guys, if you want to be a father who is a man of faith and have an impact on your family at the most basic point in their lives, especially on your children, be a man of faith. Be a man of the Word of God. Open the Bible. You might say, where to begin? I've already alluded to this. Go to the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Start with John. Then read Matthew and Mark and Luke. Read it. You might say, it's been a closed book to me. Read it. It'll become an open book if you go with a heart to hear what Christ would have to say. And He will speak to you. You won't hear Him with these ears, probably, but you'll hear Him with the ears of your heart. This man saw a great miracle, didn't he? He saw his son alive. His faith was what Jesus responded to that resulted in his physical healing. But here's really a wonderful part of this. His spiritual life came alive because he himself, this man, this royal official believed, and his whole household also believed. His wife believed. His son believed. Remember, he had slaves and the household concept would have included your servants, all his servants. And if they were married, their wives and their children, there was a great movement of God's Spirit through this man trusting in Christ and doing what Jesus had told him to do. Well, let me try to wrap this up very quickly. Remember the basic idea, men, is a father's faith impacts an entire family. 
His faith was a crisis faith. And I've been one who's taken pot shots at people's crisis faith, but it's faith nonetheless. It's faith. And Jesus sees that seed of faith. It's confident faith. We see this as he hears the word of Christ, he grows in confidence. It's confirmed faith as he's walking home and he's pondering all that he's experienced in Christ. And he's walking home and he's met by his servants. And all of a sudden they confirm that the son is indeed made well. And at the very hour that Jesus told him that his son was alive and would continue to live, that was corroborated and confirmed. And then here's the last part. His faith was contagious. I like this, this contagious part. You know, it's been said that Christianity is more caught than taught. It is. You've got to hear the gospel. You've got to understand the basic message of the Christian gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised again. You've got to understand that. But there has to be some infection that takes place because of the life you have. If you are a man of faith, It's going to impact your children. It's going to impact your whole household if you're a man of faith, if you walk with the Lord. There's a man named Benjamin Watson. He's tied in with the Baltimore Ravens. He's entering into his 14th season as an NFL player. He's a guy who has tremendous physical qualities. He graduated from the University of Georgia. He was drafted in the first round by the New England Patriots, stayed with them for about five seasons, went to the Browns, then went from the Browns to the Saints. Now he's with the Ravens. Let me tell you about him, his physical abilities. He went to the Combine. You know what the Combine is? It's like your big audition if you want to play NFL football. And these athletes do all kinds of things, and they're measured by the clock, but they're measured by their peers this man, who is a tight end, 6'3 and a half, 251 pounds, he ran the 40-yard dash in 4.53. It takes me 10 seconds at this point in my life to run a 40-yard dash. I'm impressed, really. I don't know if I can do 40 or not. He has a 35 and a half vertical. You know what that means is? Standing flat-footed, he can take those 251 pounds up and there's... Three feet between the soles of his feet and the ground. That's a quarterback's dream in the NFL, to have a tight end who can run a 4-5 and can jump that high. Unbelievable. Now, here's the part I was most impressed with when I did some research on him. There's a test that's given to all those people who are interviewing at the combine. It's called the Wonderlick. It's kind of like an IQ test. He holds the place of all the athletes who've taken this test. He holds number three all time. That's a smart dude, you know. This man has all those wonderful attributes. Intellectual, physical. His best attribute is he's a man of faith. And he has five children... Three girls and two boys. He and his wife are raising these children to know the Lord. Amazing. But do you know where it all started for Benjamin Watson, Jr.? 
with Benjamin Watson Sr. We don't know anything about him much. I tried to look up stuff. I couldn't find anything on him. But I listened to Ben Watson as he was talking about the influence his dad had. He was on the radio last week. I happened to hear this interview that he gave. And he said, my father was a man of real faith. And he spent time with me. And he loved me. And I came to faith largely because of the influence of my father. And he added, my mother too. Together, they were a formidable team for the Lord in our family. Now, here's the question, men. Are you a man of faith? And if so, are you committed to influence your children for the Lord? You'll influence them by your own faith. Knowing that you can't force your child to know the Lord. But you can certainly whet the appetite of your child. You know the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make that horse drink. I like what I heard one man say, you can do that, but you can serve the horse salt near the source of the water. And we are the salt of the earth if we know Jesus. Would you pray with me? I know you love your children. You wouldn't be here today if you didn't love your children, men. And the call to you is to influence them by your faith. If you do not have a faith in the Lord, today may be the day you begin your walk with the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight, the Bible says. So the encouragement to you is to trust in Jesus Christ. Give Him your life. Humble yourself before Him. Be urgent about it. Don't be casual about it. And ask Him to give you eternal life and forgiveness of your sin. And then perhaps you have walked by faith at one time pretty strongly and then something's happened in your life. You've been disappointed by God in your own mind. But remember, the Lord, He wants to give you a faith that persists in the middle of the toughest trials. And maybe today's the day you need to get back on track and just say to the Lord Jesus, I'm sorry that I have put my faith building on hold and I want to renew my walk with you today. I want to be a man of faith. Help me to be a man of the Word and follow you, Lord. Lord, thank you for the men who are here. I just pray, God, that you would remind him Every man, individually, all day long, of the need to be a man of faith in order to impact his family. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.